Hello, and welcome to another edition of the International Writers Collective Masterclass series. In each masterclass, recorded live in Amsterdam, working writers talk tips, tricks, and techniques with a focus on a single novel, short story, or handful of poems. In this edition, we speak with Kristen Rupenian, the author of Cat Person. Published in December 2017, it became the second most popular story on the New Yorker website that year, after the Harvey Weinstein expose. To date, it has garnered close to 5 million readers, making it one of the most read pieces of fiction in the magazine's history. In the class, we look at some of the stories in Rupenian's debut collection, You Know You Want This, including Cat Person, and discuss choosing a narrator, playing with the reader's expectations, using horror and fantastical elements, learning when to stop revising, becoming a productive procrastinator, dealing with the negative voice in your head, and much more. I'm Sarah Carragher, director of the International Writers Collective, and we're delighted to have Kristen here to speak with us. She's the author of the world's first viral short story, Cat Person, and today we're going to be discussing her brand new collection, You Know You Want This, as well as speaking more generally about writing and publishing. So welcome, Kristen. Thanks so much for making time in your busy schedule for us. No, thank you so much for having me. It's beautiful here. It's really nice to be in a living room. (laughs) Yes, it really is a living room. So I like to start with like the writer origin story. And Uh I read that you you almost didn't go for it. You almost went in a totally different, into a totally different trajectory. Yeah, I feel like my, it was a winding path. And there were a couple of times that I think of as kind of like my sliding doors moment, you know, where like I almost went in a different direction. I was a reader always. This is how I usually give my my origin story, Mm -hmm. like I'm a superhero or something. Mm -hmm. But um, yeah, no, I was always a reader, but and I understood, I feel like, from a really young age that if you were a reader and that was all you wanted to do, at some point you were supposed to want to be a writer. Mm-hmm. And so I would, I tried, like when I was younger, I would sit down, but I felt like reading, it, writing felt like the opposite of reading in that and when I was reading, I was absorbed. I like disappeared. I wasn't there. I was in something else. And then when I started writing, it was like, I was front and center. It was like all I could think about was my own ego and my own anxieties and my own. It just felt like so different. And so I would try. I would go in sort of bursts in high school. I would, you know, I, I was like on the lit mag. I would try and write things, but it never felt, it never felt, it, it just never quite felt right. And so I, a lot of my 20s was spent kind of like not being sure what path I was supposed to be on, trying various things. Um, I, Ended up, I was in the Peace Corps, I did a PhD, I almost joined the State Department, which might be the time that um, you were thinking of, mm-hmm. where I came, I came very close to just, like, you know, yeah, um, being a diplomat and living overseas, mm-hmm. which would have been wonderful in its own way, but was would have been a very different life. But when I was in my late, it was in my early 30s, I was trying again to write, and there was something that happened to me, we can talk a little bit more in detail, but where writing started to feel like reading again. It started mm-hmm. to feel like something that wasn't about me or that was somehow like a little more immersive, a little, um, the texture changed. And when that happened, then I knew. And then there wasn't really any question about what I wanted to do. Once it felt like that, I was like, oh, this is it. But it took me a really, really long time to get to the place where that felt true. Yeah. What was that switch that got flipped? I mean, yeah. That's... I mean, I think about it a lot because I like, 
tried so hard to make it things change and it was sort of in that moment I think it's not as lot when you stop trying mm-hmm. that that it happened so I was I was so I was doing my PhD I've been reading endlessly mm-hmm. um but I felt I had like recently turned 30 and I just had this feeling that was mounting that was like when I was when I was younger, I was I did write, and it was sort of the thing that I did, and I got a lot of praise for it. Mm-hmm. And so, like, I there was a feeling like, okay, you should be able to do this. And then as I got older and older, and I didn't write anymore, there was sort of a moment where I was like, nobody else cares. Like, <laughs> truly, like your teachers have forgotten about you. Your mom isn't bugging you any longer. Like, the it's either you will write this, write something, or you won't. And the odds are so high that you won't because you haven't. And so, if you write anything it's better than the nothing that you have written for the past 10 Mm -hmm. years and I think that that was a really important shift where suddenly it felt like about me and Mm -hmm. not about any other kind of yeah not going to beautiful uh, um, about anything other than that and then I also tried to write and I I wouldn't say it had never occurred to me before but I was like I'm going to write something that I want to read you know not the kind of thing that I want to have written, you know, like yeah. a beautiful story that will explain to everyone what a genius I am, mm-hmm. you know, which I think is sometimes was my earlier motivation. And mm-hmm. so I wrote a thriller and the, and it was like in that thriller, a lot of stuff that I cared about really deeply ended up making its way in. But the structure of like, this is just a story that I'm telling because it's the kind of story that I would like to read mm-hmm. and I'm doing it essentially for myself because no one else is invested in it was a really different shift from the way that I had tried and failed to approach writing right. previously. So writing for yourself, taking the pressure off the yeah. outcome. Yeah, exactly. So yeah. yeah, really important things totally. that we try and tell our yeah, students exactly. as well. Exactly. Because otherwise it's just so easy to get blocked. Right, right. Mm-hmm. And that you just kind of, there's a kind of self-consciousness that I feel like is really key to setting aside. And it takes a lot of practice and effort to like learn how to drop that yeah. kind of self-monitoring. So it has gotten easier. As I mean, gone it along. was getting easier, and then my whole life happened, and now <laughs> it's hard again. But it, but yeah, I feel like I did. I, I started to understand what it felt like when it felt right. Yeah, I know it varies from story to story, but you know, most of the time, where do you begin? Like, what is that kernel that then grows into a story? Yeah, it does really vary. Often, it's. I've done. I did a thing once that was a kind of unusual setup where um, I knew I was going to have, I was in a writer's program called Clarion where you have to write six stories in six weeks. It was a very, and so I knew I would need to write a lot really fast. And I, every morning before that, I sat down with an anthology of stories that I loved and I would read one. And then I'd be like, I'd pick something out of the story and be like, and it was a horror anthology. So like, I would say something like, oh, this story has a a screaming skull in it. I could write a story about a screaming skull. And I would like come up with an idea. And there was something like about the artificiality of that was actually really productive. But usually it's, um, it's a feeling. And usually it's something that will have happened to me in life that's bothering me that usually ends up having nothing to do with what the actual story is about, but I'll be angry and I won't know why, or I'll be frustrated or even Mm -hmm. just like, I won't be able to stop thinking about some thing that happened or someone that's like upset me. And that kind of like, I think of it as a kind of itchiness. Mm -hmm. Like it's just like, Oh, I gotta, I gotta dig at this and then I'll start the story. And often by the end, that's almost like, it's hard to even remember that that was its origin, but Usually I can yeah. excavate it if I do. That's kind of what happened with Cat Person, wasn't Definitely. it? Definitely, yeah. That you'd had this 
unfortunate encounter yeah, with a guy totally. from online that was totally different than right. the experience in exactly. cat person, but that that yeah. feeling that you were left exactly. with. Yeah, that sense of like, and often I think it's a feeling of like seeing myself mm-hmm. like unexpectedly or like I'm seeing something, like it'll be something in the world, you know, but really what I'm seeing is like, oh, like this way that I acted doesn't fit into the story of myself, you know, or I don't quite understand it or mm-hmm. I don't like that thing that I'm seeing in me and I want to kind of like sort it out and understand it. And that makes it sound more sort of direct, like more therapeutic than it is because it's usually like, it's not like it gets solved at the end, but it's just like a kind of a, a, a self-aware, a moment of kind of uncomfortable self-awareness can be like the spark for a story. I mean, it sounds quite brave. I mean, <laughs> many of us want to run away from those uncomfortable moments yeah. instead of just kind of mining them in the way it sounds like you do. And I think it can be really tempting, and certainly it's something that I have done to use writing to cover it up, Mm -hmm. to be like, oh, well, it seems like I was a jerk in this situation, Mm -hmm. but actually let me tell you a story about Mm -hmm. why I was the hero of this interaction. Mm -hmm. And it's like more, for me, it feels really necessary to like do the opposite and sort of like get underneath that. Yeah, those those first kind of stories generally yeah. don't turn out so well right, in my right. experience. Yeah, no, totally. But mm-hmm. it can be a really tempting thing, you mm-hmm. know, to write the story of why all your enemies Cathartic. were wrong. Yeah, <laughs> but yeah, definitely. Mm-hmm. You said um, the moment you think you know what you're saying with a story, you're doomed. Yeah. <laughs> can you say a bit more about that? Yeah, I think um, it's just been really funny doing now that I have a book out trying to explain what I meant Mm -hmm. with my stories because it just feels like such lies and revisionist (laughs) history but you have to have stories because I feel like mostly I start in a place of confusion you know what I mean I start in a place of like like I was saying like I don't know what just happened but it feels really bad Mm -hmm. um and ideally after like you write the story in my experience at least is you write the story and then at some point after you start to understand it mm-hmm. and you can explain this is what happened and this is why mm-hmm. and this is what's here. And sometimes there are like bits and pieces of like things I've been thinking out about I'll put in a story. You know, it's not purely just like raw, und- you know, but but yeah, I feel like if you're not starting from a place of like genuinely wanting to know, A, what's going to happen in the story and B, what it means there's like a relationship between you and the reader that is essentially sort of didactic, mm-hmm. right? And it, and that the better thing is to start in a place where you're equals, where you're both like, yeah, I genuinely don't know what to make of this scenario. And I think, I do think that that is palpable often in stories where like if you're raw in starting the story and you know that you're at limits, the reader can feel that and be there with you. Um, and I think if you start feeling like you know everything like I'm gonna write a story that will mean x y and z then you'll end up it's like a little boring because you're not discovering anything along the way and it feels like there's a gap between you and the right reader who's coming genuinely not knowing yeah. do you know what I mean and it it's a kind of imbalance yeah and you're trying to kind of as a writer herd the reader along right. in a certain direction right. direction and get them to draw certain conclusions and as a reader yeah it feels very different than like the story is Kind of an exploration right. and discovery. I had a teacher who said once that um, you should always write for someone who's a little smarter than you. And I really <laughs> like that because I mm-hmm. feel like it's not the natural or it wasn't my natural way of coming to the story. Mm-hmm. But if you think like, oh, I'm going to get as far as I can and maybe my reader will be smart enough to pull it even further. Yeah. That feels, I don't know, that feels good to me. 
that feels like a, a healthy relationship with the people who eventually read your story. So a lot of the a lot of the actual work of coming up with the story then happens on the subconscious level rather than coming from your analytical yeah. brain. So how do you access that part? Yeah. I mean, I had for a while a very practical way, which I would and I'm not the only person did who does it, but when I was trying to get out of writer's block in that first period that I was talking about, I would have I had it every morning I'm like big on rituals. I feel like many writers are like Mm -hmm. so big on rituals. It's slightly unnerving, but I am, I need them. And I would have a thing where I'd have a book next to me and I would have my computer and I would be like, you can read for this hour of block time or you can write. And like, if you want to write, it can be for two minutes or it can be for the full hour. Like there's no pressure. And I felt like having that kind of early morning, I think before your analytical brain first Mm -hmm. wakes up, sense of like I don't think I am a strong believer that like willpower is actually pretty useless when it comes to like channeling whatever the parts of your brain that you can't necessarily control you know that when you get locked into a battle you always lose like oh I have to write I'm gonna sit down like why can't you write there's something wrong with you right for me that that voice is not helpful exactly I'm sure everybody knows like in the room what it's like to sort of be in a direct war Mm -hmm. with that with that voice and so for me it's about like tricking myself essentially into feeling safe in terms of writing whatever Mm -hmm. um that I think of drafting is really different than editing I feel Mm -hmm. like there has to be space for drafting where you don't let that voice in um and partly it can be like because you'll have your chance you know like there will be the time when you'll go back and like clearly then you need that voice exactly exactly so so getting it in right relation and for me like the more I don't know like I also feel like there's a lot of time that needs it's subconscious but it's also like sometimes it's conscious before it's on the page where I'm just like wool gathering like I'm just thinking you know like people talk about going like going for walks or like I I'm thinking all the time and often especially Mm -hmm. when I'm in a story I'm thinking about it but it's a lot closer to daydreaming than analyzing it's it's this other kind of of work yeah it's kind of like on the back burner in a way while you're walking or doing the dishes or taking a shower or something else and yeah Yeah. so that you're the full force of your analytical mind is not chewing on it no totally yeah before I was a reader or before I was writing regularly I thought of myself as a very lazy person Mm -hmm. because I felt like I needed so much buffer time Mm -hmm. like to not like to get anything done or have an idea it took me like seven hours of kind of like spacing out and looking out the window and now it seems so clear to me that that's just part of of what it takes you know what I mean it's just stuff is happening even if it doesn't look like it is which is hard because you don't always have that time you have to like carve it out or figure out ways to like make the time that you do have richer yeah yeah and I think just being conscious of those moments where maybe you are doing something else right oh I could be thinking about my story right now yeah but you're vindicated I mean now they're coming out with scientific studies that procrastination is actually Mm -hmm. important for creativity yeah totally I'm also a big productive procrastinator I feel like I just if you feel like you should be doing something else it's really easy to write a story and it's very hard to write a story when Mm -hmm. you feel like what you should be doing is writing a story yeah, so I, I like the idea of, you know, having a couple of different stories going. So if you don't yeah, feel like exactly. working on one, you can always procrastinate exactly. with the other. Exactly. Yeah. Truly. I, when people are like, 
how do you know about writing these short stories? I feel like half that time, the answer is I had a novel project I was supposed to be working on. And I was yeah. like, fuck that. I want to do this instead. And suddenly I had a short collection. short story sounds so much yeah, more fun exactly. in comparison. Yeah. 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 It's cool. Yeah. We like, in our workshops, we like talking a lot about narrators. Yeah. And you have a real interesting collection of narrators. <laughs> in your, in, I mean, it's, you know, lots of close third person, mm-hmm. A, mm-hmm. a couple of first person, but also yeah. a... Uh, first person plural, yeah. which you. I was thinking maybe it might be nice just to read like the the op- just to give those who haven't had a chance yet the flavor of sure. that. Just like the we first narrator. Page. Yeah, we uh-huh. do that. There we go. Bad boy. Our friend came over the other night. He and his terrible girlfriend had finally broken up. This was his third breakup with that particular girlfriend, but he insisted it was going to be the one to stick. He paced around our kitchen, working his way through this 10,000 petty humiliations and torments of their six-month relationship while we cooed and fretted and bent our faces into sympathetic shapes in his direction. When he went to the bathroom to collect himself, we collapsed against each other, rolling our eyes and pretending to strangle ourselves and shoot ourselves in the head. One of us told the other that listening to our friend complain about the details of his breakup was like listening to an alcoholic whine about being hungover. Yes, the suffering was there, but good God, it was hard to muster sympathy for someone with so little insight into the causes of his own problems. How long was our friend going to continue to date terrible people and then act surprised when they treated him terribly, we asked each other. Then he came out of the bathroom and we mixed him his fourth drink of the evening and told him he was too drunk to drive home, but that he was welcome to crash on our couch. Great. And so how did you, what made you want to write uh, a we, like a story from the point of view of a we? Yeah. So when I started writing the story, I opened with the we voice, but I imagined mm-hmm. that at some point it was going to split and that there would be an I and uh, the genders are actually unspecified, but like an mm-hmm. I and a him or an I and a her. And I didn't. And sort of the long, but then the longer I went, the more I started to feel like there was something slightly are very like surreal and unsettling about just refusing to break from the we and so like there's the moment there there's a moment that in on this page somewhere where I feel like and it was early where I was like whoa that's a strange image that I kind of we bent our faces into sympathetic shapes like there's something so alienating about that like and hearing people multiple people refer to themselves they're like a single kind of like a single Mm. body and I feel like the the story is about lack of that. Ba- it's about the dissolution of boundaries. It's about what happens when two people kind of get so close that they can't distinguish sort of their right relation to each other. And then they like, they sort of turn on the third. And so it felt thematically right not to distinguish them. And also I liked the kind of the slight wrongness about mm-hmm. how everything sounded, even when they were describing relatively normal behavior it's like I feel like there was an image kind of that was also evoked of like a multi-limbed sort of creature, <laughs> you know, moving through the space, which actually has a direct correlation with the later stories, like yeah. of, of fused bodies. And so that was something that, with only the pronoun, I felt like I could kind of evoke. Um, and it was fun to sort of push that image without ever going like so over that it couldn't just be two people who just wouldn't break that voice yeah and that you just as a reader you really it's hard to get a grip on that couple you don't know what what gen if it's two women or a woman and a guy like you know what's the we just don't know and and 
yeah. Really yeah, and I think it's unsettling, but it feels like it doesn't, they don't think it matters. And yeah. so it, it doesn't matter mm-hmm. in the context of the story because they are so fused. They're not looking at each other. Yeah. So they're just looking outward. Yeah. yeah. Great. And then um, most of the stories are actually in a, in a kind of a close third. Yeah. And what is it that you that you like about that narrator. Yeah, I love close third. I feel like it's my natural space. Mm-hmm. As a writer, all whenever I move into first or in the like sort of weird we, mm-hmm. I feel like I'm breathing slightly strange air or something. Mm-hmm. The, the close third for me is just it's the it's so how to explain it and maybe explaining it is like kind of impossible it just feels because it just feels so natural but I feel like what I'm usually interested in is getting deep into somebody's head and yet also if we're talking about narrators letting the reader have the right amount of space from the narrator um from the character right but letting you into someone's consciousness ideally I think so closely that you forget for a while that there is a character there. Do you know what I mean? That you are just feeling absorbed into the story. But I think a great joy of Close Third is that every once in a while you can kind of bump the reader out and be like, Who's, who the hell's head am I in? Like, who is this person? You know, what is was I swept along by what was hopefully like persuasive and enough of a story that I didn't, that I started thinking things or being that I sort of adopted this uh, this vision of like this person's view of the world without mm-hmm. quite recognizing that it sort of slid in over my own. Yeah. I don't know if it's a kind of obscure way of talking about it, but it does feel true that like that moving in and out that close third allows where it can become almost invisible is really satisfying to me. Yeah. But because when you suddenly make it visible, it can be such a, a good shock. Yeah, well, and and you see that really clearly in that story, Sardines, where yeah. all of a sudden, like, I think two-thirds right. of the way through, right. you think you're in the mom's point of view, and then then this narrator comes in and right. says, maybe we can actually look at sure. that. Yeah, maybe start at the top of the page so we get a bit of a sense. Okay, so, like, start with Marla, but yeah. then go into the part. Okay. Marla knows, so Marla is the mom, and, and Tilly is her daughter, Um Marla knows the kind of thing Antilly has just asked Marla if um, Marla hates her ex's new girlfriend, um, which she does. Marla knows the kind of things she's supposed to say. Of course not, baby. Or hate is not the nicest word. Or I will always love your dad because he gave me you. But all the necessary platitudes shrivel on her tongue. So instead, she says nothing and Tilly nods. You made a lot of mistakes, but you're still a good mama, she says. She hugs Marla fiercely, plants a sloppy kiss right in her ear, and scoops up a handful of cake. Tilly, Marla calls out as her daughter leaves the room. Yeah? What did you wish for earlier? Tilly's cake-ringed grin is glisteningly lovely. Oh, mama, pretty soon you'll see. And then, leave Tilly to her plotting. Leave Marla to her wine. Imagine yourself instead as the girlfriend. Here you are at your boyfriend's daughter's birthday party, hosted by your boyfriend's daughter's mother, attended by your boyfriend's daughter's mother's friends, who have all come parading into your home, hell-bent on proving how much they dislike you. And it is your home. It's not like you're some party crasher. You live here. The mother, refusing to say your name or look straight at you. Your boyfriend, embarrassed, squirming out from underneath your touch. 
and the daughter jabbing her pointy finger in, in your face. You, you're the hider. How can those words not ring in your ears like an accusation? How can you help but feel as you flee down the hill in your clunky espadrilles, I guess that's how you say that, <laughs> at least a little bit like prey? Um, and so, yeah, it jumps from it jumps from Marla into the girlfriend. And I think that maybe, yeah, another reason that I'm tempted to like use close third, but also play for, play with close third is that I one of, I think, the ideas of the book or that one of the things I'm, I'm interested in like kind of poking at is questions of empathy and I think mm-hmm. questions of kind of especially imaginative empathy or readerly empathy mm-hmm. where like we have this cliche like this fundamental understanding I think and the more literary you are the more you tend to believe it that like reading makes you a good person mm-hmm. it makes you more empathetic it makes you more like able to imagine yourself into someone else's mind but I feel like not necessarily, you know, like it, it, it does not do that inherently. And I think it, it's good in that story. Like you hate the girlfriend because you're in Marla and mm-hmm. Marla hates the girlfriend. And then you have you're with her and you and you feel that energy of her hatred and to like get you going on that and then just like kind of body slam you out of it and be like, no, imagine <laughs> on yourself on the other side of it wouldn't make you, you know, it, it's a discomforting kind of like. I feel like it's a record scratch. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. It moves you from one kind of imaginative identification to another. And I think I like, I just like doing that. I like thinking about what weird ideas we have about what it means to read a book um, and imagine a character and have a relationship with characters in a story. Yeah. I mean, I think it's, it's, it's really interesting in that a lot of your stories, what they do play out in the characters' heads and in their imaginations and that, close third person really allows you to kind of unpack, you know, the reactions yeah. and, and how what's happening in the real world kind of fuels that fantasy that people, the stories that people are telling themselves. Yeah. And and I think it, with the first person, it could feel maybe a little too self-indulgent totally. and navel-gazy. Right. You need, it would have been, or claustrophobic. You'd yeah. be like, oh my God, I need to get me out of this head. person's head. And I think, yeah, the close third can give you a little bit more breathing room. Mm-hmm. I also... I guess you could do this in first two, but a thing someone asked me about character once, and I felt like this was something I noticed mu- very much in retrospect. Is the characters that I write about, yeah, tend to mostly be in their head, their own heads, mm-hmm. and they're self-analytical. And sort of, I think this for me is often the seed of character. Is like they'll have an impulse, they'll have a desire, but then they'll see themselves having the desire, and then they'll think, you know, what does it mean? for me, someone like me to have a kind of desire like this. And then it's like, you're off to the races thinking and thinking about yourself. And I sort of mm-hmm. imagine that it's like, from that is where character comes from. Mm-hmm. It's like a moment of feeling a moment or like an experience, but then it's reflecting on the experience and like telling yourself the story of the experience. And that is what makes a character. It's what makes mm-hmm. a person on the page. Mm-hmm. And then you even have a kind of parable about uh-huh. that yeah. in, the, in the book. Yeah, the mirror. You're in the mirror. Yeah, yeah. yeah. The mirror, the bucket, and, and the old thigh, thigh bone. bone. Yeah, the fairy tale. Yeah, I mean, I think that's the one in which it plays out the most explicitly. And it, and yeah, I think um, the stories make explicit and make extreme something that I feel like I see in life. Do you know mm-hmm. what I mean? And then the chance to like trace out really carefully. It's kind of like a. Um, Sometimes I think the stories are kind of like crime scene story, you know, where it's like something ugly has happened. The emotional crime scene. Exactly. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And it's like, 
it can be hard when something really intense, when emotions are intense or like dramatic stuff happens, like it can feel as though it happens in an instant. But actually, if you slow down and spread it out, there's this like whole story of like experience and reaction and thought and interpretation and analysis that you can see play out on the page. Yeah, I'm thinking maybe even to look at a at a place where where we can see that happening. Yeah. And maybe I think I mean you've done it masterfully in Cat Person, which I think is partly why people have been so reacted so strongly so, to it yeah. because you've you've put on the page something that you know m- many people have experienced, but the way that you've unpacked it so carefully and kind of described all the different nuances is really uh it's really great oh so it's robert and margo on a date i won't even like contextualizing it's impossible but just as she thought this he said don't worry i'm not gonna okay actually start a little earlier because i do feel like that is a sort of key moment um the moment she wanted he wanted to see the movie he wanted to see was playing at the theater where she worked but she suggested that they see it at the big multiplex just outside town instead. Students didn't go there very often because you needed to drive. Robert came to pick her up in a muddy white Civic with candy wrappers spilling out of the cup holders. On the drive, he was quieter than she'd expected, and he didn't look at her very much. Before five minutes had gone by, she became wildly uncomfortable, and as they got on the highway, it occurred to her that he could take her someplace and rape and murder her. She hardly knew anything about him after all. Just as she thought this, he said, don't worry, I'm not going to murder you. And she wondered if the discomfort in the car was her fault because she was acting jumpy and nervous, like the kind of girl who thought she was going to get murdered every time she went on a date. It's okay, you can murder me if you want, she said. And he laughed and patted her knee. But he was still disconcertingly quiet and all her bubbling attempts at making conversation bounced right off of him. At the theater, he made a joke to the cashier at the concession stand about red vines, which fell flat in a way that embarrassed everyone involved. But Margot, most of all, just mm-hmm. up there. Yeah, know. that's good. I think yeah. that gives a sort of a sort of feel for yeah, yeah. Every little every little thing that happens in the real world, and then you know you see these ripples that right. it has through the characters, right, uh, right. And how she's doing. Yeah. She's constantly kind of interpreting him mm-hmm. and then triangulating him, and her stories about what he's thinking vary so much from he's going to murder me to he's uncomfortable, mm-hmm. to he's in love with me. You know, like, it, yeah. they just swing wildly. And she's always, like, she's just constantly thinking, kind of storytelling, and then, like, yeah, worrying, what does it say about me that I'm the kind of person who thinks that someone is going to murder me? You know, like, what a, what a strange thought yeah. to, like, have running through your head. But so relatable I did, and, like, at the same yeah, time. Yeah, and I think those moments where you realize what's relatable is so strange you know yeah. we, that's what i'm saying when you look at yourself and you're like what the hell like yeah. of course like yeah i think yeah, i think about the likelihood of getting murdered all the time in such strange circumstances <laughs> yeah. that's a weird way to live but like it can be easy to forget it because it seems just natural yeah what is that quote about that the job of the writer is to make the familiar unfamiliar right. exactly along those yeah. Lines? yeah 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 yeah, so I think, I mean, you did a great job with that in, the, in these stories. Many of them are from a male point of view, or a, a good number of them yeah. are from a male point of view. And what was it that made you want to go there? And what were the particular challenges or pitfalls, let's yeah. say, of writing from a gender from totally a gender point of view? Um, yeah, there were, I, it's funny, like, 
Night Runner that I worked on with Karen and um, Workshop is the oldest story in the collection, and that's from a male POV. And actually, so was the first novel that I ever wrote. Maybe there's just maybe something about it that drew me. I think maybe not in an entirely good way. I think that there are a lot of times when I'm writing stories, often what is happening is that there's something really uncomfortable, like we're saying, something really uncomfortable, really kind of like electric that I'm trying to get at. And I need some distance and space from those feelings. If I put them in the mind of a character who is just like me, I couldn't address them. And so often I will try and like get some distance by writing from it from a slightly different space. And um, sometimes in the early stages, writing from a man's point of view was, was that for me. Um, but I think later and sort of the more I've done it, the more I think of it less as like something, I think this reflects my understanding of the difference between genders, something less like something fundamental, like as, and then as one of many differences that you're often needing to reach across in order mm-hmm. to write a character who's different from you. Mm-hmm. And so whenever I do that, whenever, which is whenever I write a character, I'm first looking for the things we have in common. Like I'm looking for the thing that I'm trying to talk about that I have experience of directly that I'm thinking about and it's sort of like sometimes it's like a counterfactual experiment like okay I am an intense people pleaser who just wants to make everyone happy all the time but I live as a woman what might that same raw material like how might it grow like in this in the in the mind of a man or someone much older than me or much younger than me and so the the first thing is an attempt to connect but then I do think there's a really clear and it's often a kind of funny moment where it's like a it is 100% a craft thing where I think, what do I actually not know about what it's like to be a man or what it's like to be 20? And then I just have to kind of cover that up and try and take those parts out and like mm-hmm. fake it basically. Mm-hmm. And so I think, um, you know, and, and sometimes it really is like with Margot when I was writing her, there were points where I wanted to put conversation she was having in text, but I was like, I have no idea how a 20 year old would put that. And so I was like, delete and then wrote it just in summary. And with Ted, for example, or when I write male characters, one thing that I noticed is that they're almost always in conversation with women because my understanding of men, by definition, there's always a woman in the room. And I think it would be a very different thing to write men talking only to other men. But I, and I don't think that I couldn't do it, but I think it's a way of like, using what you know and like kind of hiding or like putting up some camouflage mm-hmm. on the parts where you don't so. did you do any sort of ground truthing with male readers did you did i you didn't give, give the story who read the story did any men men read all my readers are women. it's weird when mm. when the good guy specifically came out I have only, I, I'm sure there may have been men who are like, that's ridiculous, but they didn't tell me directly. Like, it was nice to occasionally hear, like, oh, it feels like you got something right. But most of my my readers were women and are. And I, I, I do think kind of, yeah, I don't know. I, I think also it's like, you say that and then it's true that like, but also I'm reading things by men all the time. I'm hearing men talk all the time. Mm-hmm. There's this quote that I, I'm sort of sick of, myself saying but I do really love it's by Terry Pratchett the fantasy writer and he was talking about like what it's like to write across genders and he his description is um 
if you're riding on, you can ride a horse across the desert a hundred miles and never think about what the horse is thinking. Mm-hmm. But if you're the horse and someone is riding you a hundred miles across the desert, <laughs> you're gonna be thinking about what's going on in their head every minute. Mm-hmm. And I do feel like there is maybe something about being a woman in a world largely run by men that gives you this weird habit of thinking about what might men be thinking in this brand mm-hmm. that you can then use to fill in some of the gaps but maybe not i don't know which we see a lot of the characters doing as well they're constantly trying to interpret yeah what's going on in the heads of the men around them yeah and sometimes i think and often to bad you know to bad Mm -hmm. ends and i think that sometimes writing is a re-channeling of some of the impulses that i have which i don't even think of as particularly gendered Mm -hmm. but that obsessive thinking about what other people are thinking sometimes there have been moments when i was like i could like search on facebook for evidence of like somebody's past relationship or she could channel that desire Mm -hmm. to know everything about everyone in any given minute into a story Mm -hmm. i think they're similarly create like there's something creative at both of them Mm -hmm. you both you want to tell yourself a story yeah one of the things I thought was really interesting reading your stories is I mean as so beginning writing students are always told to you know show don't tell Uh uh-huh yeah and you know many of your stories I think demonstrate how powerful telling can be if it's done if it's done right yeah and I think largely, you know, because you are able to kind of unpack right. what's going on in different characters' yeah. heads. Maybe if you could say a little bit about sure, that. Sure, yeah. No, I totally think of myself as, like, a teller mm-hmm. in some ways. And I think storytelling is that. You know You're telling, I mean? yeah. yes. Um, I think, I mean, obviously, it's good advice in certain circumstances. You know sure. what I mean? Like, you don't. But I, but I do think there, there are times, I think that there are times when writing should kind of make itself invisible. And I think that trusting the reader, like you you do sometimes need to show things. And I feel like I have a great joy in showing things, especially when they're disgusting or especially when it's the monster. You know, like that it can be such a pleasure in like watching someone paint a really detailed picture. But I do think that writing distinguishes itself from all of the other storytelling forms in that the more space you leave for the reader, the more they can fill in the blanks, right? Mm-hmm. And the more control they have over the world they're imagining. And so if you show too much, if you give sort of detailed instructions for every single thing that should be seen or imagined over the mm-hmm. course of the story, you're robbing the right the reader of the chance to do that themselves and maybe put more of themselves into the story. And so then the telling becomes just like a kind of roadmap to the story that they're going to be showing themselves. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and I mean, you don't include many physical descriptions and, yeah. or, you know, descriptions of setting or, you know, yeah. all of that is left I, yeah. very minimalistic, I would say. I, I mean, there's definitely like, details. Yeah, yeah but, I feel like I, I do notice that in my own stories. Mm-hmm. And I think it drives some people crazy. Like, mm-hmm. they just want, I think there's a really, I, I saw um, Tony Mara, Anthony Mara. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. I don't know if you guys know him. Love um, in techno. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, he, I saw him read and speak recently, and listening to him, truly, it is the densest. I love it, but it's so different because it's the densest writing where the, a sentence doesn't go by, where there isn't some fully fledged like thought or metaphor or idea. Like it's the most densely pictured story, mm-hmm. but it's like reading it is more like reading poetry. It feels like it's like you, you aren't disappearing into it at all. You're always thinking about the language that's right there. And I, I think there really is a spectrum um, in terms of if he's one 
and I don't know, I'm, I feel like I'm farther on the, on the telling side where like mostly I think my language is invisible until the second when it's not. And then right. it's like, hey, here yeah. I am. Yeah. And then, um, yeah, I mean, you have a lot of invisible characters as well uh, in the stories where people are having conversations oh, with people yeah, that yeah, don't. Yeah don't exist except inside of their heads. I thought that was actually quite a clever trick to keep it very interactive, like the tribunal and um, uh, and good guy. And then all the imagined conversations with Anna and then the cat person, Margot, is envisioning telling the story to her her boyfriend. Yeah, that is both a technique and I think an accurate description of what it's like to live in my brain. Do you know what I mean? (laughs) It's just very peopled and I think rarely do the people actually have to be there in the room for me to be kind of engaging with them Mm -hmm. um yeah I mean one thing that I did people ask me sometimes in terms of like craft stuff when I was writing cat person and they're texting a lot Mm -hmm. and they're like oh it's really hard to write about texting and it is and something I did kind of consciously that I think is a good like trick is that even though they're texting each other Margo's always in the room with someone else. She's mm-hmm. like with her dad and texting or mm-hmm. she's with her roommate and texting. So even though it's in her head and they're having this other conversation, it's getting bounced and kind of triangulated off another person. And I thought that was really helpful to me to make it feel like the texting was an organic part of the story as opposed to just reading like a long description of texts that were being exchanged. Yeah, you're still people. in a scene. Exactly, yeah. Speaking of leaving room for the reader mm-hmm. and you've talked about that kind of narrative Uh, narrative scaffolding how did you come to this philosophy of of writing I mean like (laughs) whenever (laughs) I mean I feel like all I am is a person who's read a lot of books and Mm -hmm. knows now having read enough what I like to you know what I like Mm -hmm. and so I think I don't know that I have a philosophy of of writing is as much as after a long a long time spent reading lots of different kinds of books Mm -hmm. I tend to know what I like to read and what I, what kind of experience I want to give the reader of my Mm -hmm. book. And that's like the easiest way for me to conceptualize it. I get really, it's overwhelming to me to be like, what should writing be? Like, Mm -hmm. I don't know. And it seems like there are a million correct answers, but I do know when I am the most immersed in a book and in a story, how I feel. Mm -hmm. And I can then go back and try and pick out the things that the writer did to maybe make me feel that way. Mm -hmm. And that, then if I think about the story as just like an experience I'm offering to someone else, then yeah. it's like I want it to work. And these are the techniques I can find to make it work. Yeah. And it's that. And so who are those authors that you turn to when you're kind of looking for inspiration or for a technique or um, that you're kind of stealing, wanting to steal from? We steal. We highly encourage yes, stealing. Yes, definitely so, stealing. Yeah. And like emulating and like yeah. taking. Yeah. Um, I do that huge. I, had a t- I took a class with Amy Hempel once, mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. she told me a story about how she once got writer's block really badly just in the middle of her career, and she had a friend who'd written a story she really admired, and she was like, I am going to copy this story word for word, sentence by sentence, so that like where she has a noun, I will have a noun. Where she has a verb, I will mm-hmm. have a verb, and I will do that until I have written a full story. And she was like, it was like using someone else's writing as crutches mm-hmm. to like move yeah. forward. And I tracing thought, exactly. count by numbers yeah, or something. Exactly. Paint by numbers. And I'm mm-hmm. sure that because it was Emmy Hempel, this story was brilliant mm-hmm. and no one ever made the connection, but I just really I loved that. Mm-hmm. Um but yeah, no, I I really love Shirley Jackson as someone who for me that like the combination of horror and humor in her work is just like all like this goal that I will feel like I will spend my whole life trying to reach. Mm-hmm. And the kind of, there's a kind of 
unleashedness to it that I really admire where you just, you read her and you're just like, that feeling of kind of like admiring bafflement. Like, mm-hmm. what the hell How did she this? do that? <laughs> yeah, and also, what is she doing? Yeah. But it's real, you know, I love that. But I also think, and I think it can be really useful when you're trying to write go back to the things that you liked before you knew that there was such a thing as technique or there mm-hmm. was such a way like there was a way you were supposed to write mm-hmm. and so for me that's a lot of genre literature a mm-hmm. lot of like kids fantasy but also like I've said, Stephen King Ray Bradbury the stories that I just I lived in without mm-hmm. even knowing I didn't know how they worked on me I just knew that they were you like them <laughs> yeah exactly and that that is like good to remember yeah keep touching again yeah you use a lot of horror and yeah. fantastical elements in, yeah. in these stories. And what do you, well, I mean, obviously you do it because you like it, right. but what, what does that allow you to do to get at yeah. that maybe it would be difficult to get at in another way? I mean, one way that I, or one thing I think I can do is I just, a feeling I've always had about my life is that my feelings are excessive like they don't they are not proportional to the things that happen to me mm. and I remember that especially as a teenager but it's still a little true now where like you have this minor interaction with someone that makes you feel bad and if you describe it literally it's really hard to capture the full scale of like it's horror mm. and so there can be a real joy in mixing other elements so that suddenly the scale of the story that you're telling feels appropriate and suddenly then the emotions might feel small in comparison to what's happening it's like there's space to feel the feelings Mm -hmm. before you have to explain them or justify them and so I I think it can be really satisfying I just yeah I just think that like you live your life in the world and you sort of have to behave and you're trying to like be a rational person and there's this other part of you always that's kind of bubbling up underneath the surface Mm -hmm. and it's just I love reading a story Mm -hmm. that lets that part of myself also be alive and like have space in the world yeah it reminds me of the last story in your collection biter where she's struggling with that obsession not to bite people continually right and Mm -hmm. i feel like that's a good example of like i don't want to bite people it's not my desire (laughs) but i do have like i do feel like what it means to be a good person is not just to be born good and live your life good it's to be born kind of bad and to have this thing that you must keep in check and it's exhausting and it's hard work and like it doesn't come naturally and I think Mm -hmm. fiction is a space for that biter in you to like have free reign and not actually hurt anyone sometimes I'd like to talk a minute about your endings because I think many of your endings you know with most stories you can to see where it's going you know yeah. I mean the ending maybe comes as a surprise but you're sort of 80% yeah. there maybe yeah, yeah. as a reader uh-huh. with some of your endings I, I was it was really it was a total, I was like whoa <laughs> would you say that which ones would you say that was the most true I would say definitely sardines, yeah, sardines. that was true also yeah. um uh the matchbox um, yeah, sign yeah, was another one where I was like whoa I did not see that <laughs> that's funny mm-hmm. yeah I do think there's a right amount of expect expectation mm-hmm. and it's a hard balance. And I think if it takes you too, too much by surprise, there's a way that maybe the ending doesn't quite work. And mm-hmm. I guess we're in like a safe space here or mm-hmm. like I, the ending of sardines to me has always felt like it's missing like a half a beat. Mm-hmm. And, and I like that there it's the, the movement. I love a really sharp escalation. Mm-hmm, you mm-hmm. know, I love that. I love to take it 
to think, like I said, you think you're in one kind of story and then you end up in another one. Mm. I feel like with sardines, I wish I had like one more pair. <laughs> but whatever, the book exists in yeah. the world. Um, but with this story, like Mashbox Sign, on the other hand, I think that part of the fun of writing a collection like this is you don't know what genre you're in yeah. at every any given time. And the feeling of like having the rug pulled out under you, both in terms of like, plot-wise, but also, oh, I thought this was a different kind of story, mm-hmm. is, like, a really necessary for, like, the overall effect, which is one of Vertigo. And I, I was saying this to the guy who interviewed me mm. this morning, but I think partly one of the ideas of the collection is, like, we never in life know what kind of story we're in. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? We sometimes think we're in, you know, you're walking down a dark alley and you're like, oh my God, am I in a horror movie? And then your boyfriend picks you up and you're like, oh, I'm in a romantic comedy. And then you're like, oh, you know, doing this. And it's like really jarring. And I think that that, um, I wanted to capture that. I wanted to capture that feeling of like, you don't know what's going to happen. And if you think you're in a realist story, like with the matchbox sign, like why the hell shouldn't it be a monster? But also vice versa in which some of the stories you expect the monster and it doesn't come. Yeah. I mean, I think I, I read in an interview that you gave before talking about the the ordering of the stories in the collection that you wanted to have some of those more uh, fantastical dark stories at the beginning before cat person because then when you get to cat person and she's saying oh you know he could possibly murder murder me and suddenly having read those stories you're like yeah like that could happen like it turned the page and uh, this could turn into something totally different right and i think that's part of the thing the quote that you were saying before of defamiliarizing the familiar like we're so inured to that feeling of horror Mm -hmm. that feeling of like what if he murders me we're so used to skimming over it and i think part of the thing that cat person can do in this collection is be like no that's a genuinely horrifying moment Mm -hmm. and you might be so used to it that you don't even feel that horror Mm -hmm. anymore but in fact like i wanted people to feel it again Mm -hmm. and and yeah yeah. Mm-hmm. And in terms of plot, yes. I mean, are you a totally a pantser or do you do some plotting? How do you how do you like go about constructing the shape of your story? I think the constructions part happens during that daydreaming phase. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Where I'm thinking about usually by the time I sit down, I have like a couple elements that I know I want to include and often, but not always that will include an ending that I'm like aiming for. Um, But other times it does take me by surprise. Often I'm wrong. Like I usually will sit down feeling like I know the basic shape of the story Mm -hmm. and sometimes it will go in a different direction. And I think for me, it's really important to let that happen, you know, to not feel overly attached. Generally when I have spent more time plotting and organizing and planning, what happens is, I got too invested in that plan. And so when things are going wrong, I'm like, for, you know, yeah, trying to, yeah, right. And so if I spend too much, there's a real sweet spot for me in terms of like the right time to write a story. If I read it too early and I don't know enough, I get frustrated, I get blocked. If I wait too long, I like have an idea, but it like has lost its like solidified a little bit too much. Yeah. Yeah. And then in terms of revising, I mean, I, I, you know, when I'm reading things, I'm always curious as a writer. So, you know, how different did the first draft look to the final version? And could you talk a little bit about your process, maybe in reference to a, a few stories yeah. in the collection? Yeah, it feels right to talk about Nightrunner because Karen read early drafts mm-hmm. of that story. Mm-hmm. Um, and we were just talking actually about what was different <laughs> between the one she saw and the final version. And I can't quite remember actually, like that story. So it's Nightrunner, it's five or six years old, and I regularly went back to it and revised it. And so I don't 
at this point even quite know at what point things changed. Mm-hmm. And I think it's funny for all the work that I did do on it, its arc is the same. Like nothing mm-hmm. new happens exactly, mm-hmm. um, which tends to be true, I think, of most of the stories. What I will fiddle with, and the, the stories that I've added the most and have changed most, are Night Runner and Matchbox Sign, um, both of which went to workshops multiple times and got a ton of feedback from people about largely their relationship to the characters, kind of the closeness of the close third. Mm-hmm. I don't think it's a coincidence, actually, that both of those are slightly unreliable male narrators. Mm-hmm. And that was a really hard... Sometimes I would give people a, a version of the story and they'd be like this is this guy's story and you think he's a hero and I think he's an asshole, so I hate this story. <laughs> and then other times they'd be like, this guy is so clearly an asshole, I don't understand why I'm even reading this story. <laughs> and so there's like a really, like, there was, I was trying really hard to like get the reader in the right position where they were like identifying enough or like feeling like this wasn't a completely so despicable of a human being they didn't even want to be in his company, mm-hmm. but were like ready to recognize like when they should have some distance from him. And so that was a lot of like, putting in backstory and then taking it out, having scenes with Night Runner where because he's in Kenya and like giving him more context, like in terms of like he met more teachers and talked to more students. Like in an early draft of that story, people felt like his like where he was, the the Kenya backdrop was too sketchy that it was just like the story about this jerk in Kenya and we didn't get a <laughs> sense of the world. And so I spent a lot of time like filling that out so that the readers could see it even if he wasn't necessarily like engaged even if he couldn't quite mm-hmm. see it we could see around him enough to get a sense of his context but I, I i think actually that those stories the later stories i revised less or like i do a sort of as i go revising like often when i first open a document i'll look at the thing and like mm-hmm. take up awkward phrasing or whatever mm-hmm. like i'll do some line editing but um i kind of think that what happens or what happened to me is like there was a period in my life where I was in getting tons and tons and tons of feedback. And I think I internalized it so that I just, and that's part of what it means to get better. Whereas like the voices of people who be like, Oh, this part is going on too long. You just know it, Mm -hmm. you know? So then it doesn't actually have to change as much in later drafts because you sort of get the hang of it early on. Yeah. Speaking of workshopping. So how do you decide kind of what to take on board and what to just kind of like, just let it go? Truly, I think that's the hardest question. Mm-hmm. And I think that so much of it is just time and like mm-hmm. practice. And I feel like I have lost so many stories essentially to workshop where like people have given me ideas that seemed good and I thought, oh, okay, I'll take it. And then I blew up the story and couldn't fix it. Yeah. And that was just like, kind of like consequences of, of the larger process of learning to incorporate feedback. I think you're not ready. I, I kind of think, I feel like my trajectory of like, first I wrote that novel without any feedback, like I wrote it by myself. And by the end, I felt like I knew basically what I was doing. And that was the point where I went to the MFA. And I actually think that was a really, I was really lucky in the way that I was able to use my MFA and that I had a basic sense of what I wanted to do and the kind of writer that I was, which meant that I could actually be super open to feedback and like not feel like I needed to be, you know, yeah, exactly. And not feel kind of knocked off course by it. And so I think just being really aware 
of your own, of like where you might be right now in terms of your relationship to feedback. Mm-hmm. And then it's totally just to be like, I'm not in a feedback mode. I'm in figure out my own shit mode. And then I will come back and get the feedback. It's not just like you get as much feedback as you possibly can. And then you're a good writer at the end of it. It's like you go in, you come back, you go yeah. in, you come back. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, in our, our courses, we really... Can you explain workshop in your story and MFA? Oh, yeah, sure. So the MFA is the Masters of Fine Arts. So it was the uh, it was a two-year process where I was in workshop with other um, graduate writers um, giving... I assume the structure is basically the same as here, where everyone's reading everyone else's stories and writing critiques of them and then sharing and talking about them. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I was going to say in our workshops, we try and uh, discourage people from fixing the problem (laughs) instead of just, you know, pointing out where they feel like it's not working and and where they feel like it is working, like what they're seeing on the page that's working well. Yeah, definitely. And I I think that, like, it's so useful to workshop. I mean, Mm. that's the thing. It's so useful to get other people's not working stories Mm. and then use them to figure out. As well, yeah. You learn as much from critiquing other people's stories. Much more, but there's like sort of a blood sacrifice sometimes that happens. It's like everyone has learned a great deal from your story and now you hate that story. (laughs) (laughs) um, But hopefully there's a balance, you know, and it's not all one way or the other. Yeah. You mentioned your first novel, um, which I think it was a thriller set mm-hmm. in Africa, set, which I thought sounded awesome, but you <laughs> talked about it as a failed, uh, failed yeah. novel. I mean, that I think is interesting in the context of what we were just talking about mm. with feedback, which, so I wrote that novel and it was after decades of not really writing. So I was like, wow, now that I've gotten out of my own way, the world will open up and give mm-hmm. me what I want. And that did not turn out to be true. So I, I wrote the novel and I did get an agent for it, but I was doing that by myself. I wasn't in a, I didn't have any friends who were writers on the internet Googling how to get an agent. And I had, you know, I had like the spreadsheet where you have everyone. I had the like query letter and I was doing mm-hmm. it. And it but I, I wanted so much to like get that book out there and to like have people read it. And like it had a kind of like Nightrunner had an unreliable male, male narrator. And, um, I sent it out to like, you know, dozens and dozens of agents and I got one guy who was like, many people were like, oh, maybe, like, I don't know, or like, I'll mm-hmm. think about it. But the one guy was like, you know, ready to make me an offer. And I just think about this all the time as like another branching moment where he was like, before we had the conversation where I knew he was going to make the offer, I was like, he just can't tell me that the character needs to be more likable because it's so important to the mm-hmm. core of this novel that the character not be made more likable. And then we got on the phone and he's like, Kristen, I love your novel. The only thing is, I think the character should be more likable. And I was like, absolutely. The character should totally be more likable. He's <laughs> like, I just wanted an agent. And I just feel like, in retrospect, we were doomed. We were doomed at that moment. And I don't know whether the novel could have worked in different hands mm-hmm. or whether it's original draft. Like, I can see, obviously, this is my first thing I ever wrote. It's problems, but I don't know that they were unfixable. But I do think that what I did was I threw what I knew about my own book in the trash in the hopes of, like, revising it to someone else's Mm. specifications. And by the end, I didn't know what kind of book it was. I didn't have a sense of what it should be doing. And so, rightly, it didn't end up selling. We did did one of these talks with Ann Holmes, and she was talking about how she 
it makes her so angry when people talk about, oh, your character should be more likable. Oh my God. She's like, you've written a character who's unlikable A+. plus. Yeah, <laughs> seriously. I mean, what I think about that, I think about all the time, is when people call your characters unlikable, they're making a really fundamental mistake or like misattribution. They're like, in locating the quality of what they're saying is I don't like your character mm -hmm. to which the answer is congratulations mm -hmm. like nobody asked you to mm -hmm. you know but that's not inherently a quality of the character mm -hmm. I may I mostly like my characters as evil as they are mm -hmm. whatever it is about them I want to be in their company that's why I wanted to write the story so if you don't like it that's normal but don't act like it's something that I did it's something you it's it's your relation mm -hmm. to the characters and I think that I mean, whatever, we don't have to get into gender. But I do think mm. it is a thing where it's like the expectation. I think when Philip Roth writes an unlikable character, people are just like, oh, he wrote a character he wanted to write, you know, and now mm. I can decide if I want to read that book or not. But the sense that, like, you should tailor your characters to my likes is like mm. a different understanding mm -hmm. of the right relationship. Hey, I'm home. had a bit of a diatribe yeah, about it. Yeah, sorry, I don't mean to add another <laughs> no. diatribe. No, no, no. It's, I'd be it's, curious it's to hear hers too. Yeah. It is. It's really weird. It's also weird because people do the thing where they assume you are their char your characters and then they say you wrote an unlikable character. <laughs> and then you're sitting there being like, all right, well, now I know where I stand. <laughs> what do you know now that you kind of wish you knew when you started? Well, I do think... I mean, I think in some ways it was a blessing not to know anything. It's like, that's how I got mm -hmm. to the end of it. And now I know too much. and It's mm -hmm. a lot harder. I do think, even though, and this sort of goes to what you were saying about, like, don't fix the problem, but mm -hmm. identify the problem. I do actually think that Agent was right and that there was a problem with, like, my relationship to my narrator, that I was contemptuous of him. And I think the reason that I did that was because the things that, were in him I was ashamed of. Like I needed more distance mm -hmm. from him than I actually ought to have. Like mm. that was almost too raw and I did some things to sort of like externalize it so that we could be like, oh, what a bad guy he is. And that's not a productive relationship. So it's not that he needed to be more likable, but that I needed to not, he didn't need to be at that much of a distance. Like yeah. we, we could have brought that stuff closer um, and I didn't. And I think... It was, I mean, I got why I did. It was really hard stuff to write about for me. Um, but I do think there was there was something that needed to get fixed there. Can you give an yeah. example of that? I'm just very curious. Yeah, so the story is about a guy who lives in the United States and he suspects that an orphan center that his company is donating money to um, is corrupt or that they're skimming off the top. And so he goes there to try and investigate what's going on. And in the end, ends up sort of making everything worse like kind of fucking up something that's there and he's not exactly the villain like there is a crime that like gets on earth but like he's there bumbling and being kind of insensitive and hurtful and i and i think one of the things that i wanted to talk about like i was in the peace war was how easily and this is in this book too like good intentions can go awry and how possible it is to to do your best to do good, especially in an unfamiliar situation and culture and cause harm instead. But I think I couldn't, had I been writing honestly about that, I might have written, not autobiographically, but I might have written about a young woman who goes with actual knowledge, like 
he didn't know anything. He was just some rando. So of course he came and stomped all over everyone and like made mistakes and like insulted people and hurt their feelings. It was worse to be a person who'd actually done all the research and spoke the language and like still couldn't keep from fucking up. And that was like the electric thing I didn't want to touch. Do you know what I mean? Like I needed it to be farther away because I didn't want people to think that I was writing a story that was like redoing those mistakes. I wanted you to be able to be like, knows that like obviously the writer knows that this guy is a jerk you know and that's not a productive relationship it's just not you have to get closer more nuanced then yeah yeah and more intimate i think there was a lack of intimacy i think in that book and then john did you have a question uh, it's just about the same thing really yeah. I, uh wondering about whether you perhaps phrase it in the sense of that the, as a writer you you not really you, you can't be in a position of sitting in judgment of your characters right you're there to draw attention to certain things and uh, but the judging is up to the reader yeah and i think it can be a slippery slope sometimes because like my characters like me are intensely self-critical and so i think it's not that they you know there's so much judgment in my stories like in some ways it's, it's a real kind of like punishing look sometimes at the characters and their flaws but i do feel like there's something about a shared vulnerability that mitigates that or that is also necessary when that's happening karen Yes. Hi. <laughs> I'm really curious how you put your collection together. So yeah. you know the, the stories are clearly in conversation with, with each other. Yeah. Um, but you have like a big box of stories and you just like dumped it out. <laughs> dumped it out and gave it to me. Write new material. Did you change stuff to kind of like? Yeah. It feels like the good guy and cat person are. You know. They're yeah. How did you do that? Yeah. So the um, collection I had I put together. I'd been like writing stories five or, for five or, six, five or six years at that point. I had more than this. So I had a, a larger number of stories. And when, and I had the idea of a collection in my head, but I also thought I wouldn't be able to sell it because I thought you can't. And so it wasn't until Cat Person was accepted into the New Yorker that I thought, okay, I have a chance. Let me actually think about what this collection should look like. And I had a couple months, you know, while I, where I was thinking about that. And it was, it was really fun, actually. It was, like, a really kind of wonderful, although also kind of terrifying, like, the moment when you realize you do have, like, certain obsessions and you have themes and, like, if they're mine, they're like, whoa, <laughs> like, those are not nice. I don't know what happened to me. Um, but, um, like, I had the title and I had, I had, the, I had the, the, the first story was the first story and the last story was the last story, always. And Cat Person was always kind of in the middle. And, um... Capers went viral so that then I could sell the, sell the collection. I went, we went out with that one. And then that I was writing Good Guy when that happened. So I was like literally mid-sentence when all of that went on. And my editor, one of the things she'd said about the collection when she bought it was like, I think this could be a little more expansive. Like it was, it was relatively short. All the, most of the stories were short. She's like, I think you could flesh it out a little. And so I said, well, you know, I have all these other stories that I didn't include, but maybe some of them with your help could get good enough to be in there. And um, I sent her all of like my my boneyard, basically, I think was what we called it. Like, plus I like slightly sneakily put, and it's funny, actually, I forgot about this, but I was writing Good Guy. And when I was only, I didn't know how long it was going to be. So Good Guy's in the novella in the middle. And um, I kind of thought it might be a novel. And when I was talking to my agent, she was like, maybe we'll go with a novel. Are you working on a novel? And I gave her a good guy. And she, and admittedly, it was like 
a very chaotic time, but she read it very fast and she was like, I don't know if anyone wants to stay in this guy's like brain for a full novel. I don't know. Let's just not. And so I put it aside. And that was a little bit of like, it, it was a slight blow to my confidence in that story, but I included the half finished version of it in the collection of other stories. And my agent was like, or my editor was like, I don't think any of the other stories belong, but finish that novella. And that was great because it was also like I needed to be told to get back to work. I needed to like get back in it. And so I did and I finished it and it ended up being just short enough that it could also go in the collection, which was great. And there was one other story that she that was in that boneyard, I guess, that she was like, maybe you could do something with this. And I tried and I tried and I tried and I just couldn't. It had just been too long since I'd been in in the story. But I ended up writing a story Death Wish that I think is sort of like that other story mm-hmm. and that ended up filling the space that she'd wanted that story to fill. So those were the two new ones. But I had an order and then I gave it to her and it's kind of funny. And she did a thing that was kind of like in a crime show where they're like moving all this. She was like, what if we did this and this and this and this and this? And then she moved everything around. And so now the final order, I don't even remember because she did it the last minute. Um, I'm sure... I feel like it probably worked, but I didn't even really follow her logic, but I felt fine as long as the ending and the beginning stay the same. Those were yeah. the two that you knew from the beginning that you yeah. wanted to be the yeah. bookends Definitely. for the collection. Yeah. And why is that? Why those two? Um, well, we talked a little bit about the first one mm-hmm. in that I felt like it anticipated a lot of themes that were coming about boundaries and power. And it also did the thing that I think the collection as a whole does, which is does a real U-turn in terms of the kind of story you think you're in. And I felt like it was good to give, like, I I have said it before, but, like, you should know what you're getting into, Mm -hmm. right? And so, like, it felt like it gave a correct (laughs) sense of the collection that was coming. Um, But then the last story, Biter, I felt like, there is a kind of arc, like the stories are really upsetting. Like I love horror, so I also find them enjoyable. Other people might not, but there is a really, there's some deep discomfort in there and Biter and in a way Deathwish, although I don't talk about it as much like that, are both stories about women who want something pretty unacceptable and they get away with it. And I felt like you should have that. You know what I mean? If you'd gone on the, the roller coaster of the story, there's something really satisfying. It felt to me about ending was just kind of like, the jaws clamping down mm-hmm. and then the one walking off stage. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I really liked that. Cool. I really liked that <laughs> Speaking a little bit about rejection, yeah. Cat Person itself was rejected yeah. numerous times. Truly. And I think, I, I mean, something I see, you know, with our students in our yeah. courses, you know, they get a couple of rejections and they're like, oh, my work is no good. Yeah. And so how do you, how do you deal with that? I mean, you just have to know it's not true. Mm-hmm. Like, it just fundamentally is not true. Like, especially with short stories, the market is really tiny. And I mean, one thing that I think is great is if you can get a chance to do it, literary magazines need readers you know for Mm -hmm. the slush pile and nothing will convince you faster how essentially random and luck-based and also just kind of like the sausage making of that is like it's good to see because like when I worked at a literary magazine it worked at just Michigan Quarterly Review so like a small mid-range literary magazine and I would just get every day they were still on paper copies when I was in there like a stack of stories this high and I somehow had to winnow them all down which I could do but like not as though I was 
objectively ranking their merits. I mm. just had to be like, this one seems like it has promise. I'm reading it. If I read it to the end, that was a really good sign. And I do think that for me, when I was sending out all the stories over and over and over again, there was a point where I stopped getting immediate rejections and they started taking a long time, which I do feel like suggested that the first readers got to the end and passed it up to the mm-hmm. editor. Although it's also like reading tea leaves, like who the hell knows. But then I read all those stories and then I was not just deciding what I liked. I was trying to guess what the editor would like. Mm. And then I would pass those on and they would sit there and then he would decide. And I saw so many stories that I thought were like the most brilliant things that I ever read. I would pass them on and he'd be like, "Yeah, that doesn't quite work. I like these other things too. Because out of hundreds, they were trying to pick three. Mm. And so like, it's just... It's not a meritocracy, except maybe over the course of a lifetime. There's mm-hmm. so much randomness in it. And so if you take two rejected stories as actual evidence of anything, you're just claiming to know something that you don't. Yeah. Right. Or even like 30 rejected truly, stories. Truly, truly. I mean, I, I had that. I had the spreadsheet for my novel with the agents and all the ones that rejected it. I had a spreadsheet for stories and you get one back and you send it out and you get one back and you send it out. And I think, I don't know, like maybe at some point if you've sent out a story to every single place that could possibly take it and you've gotten rejected from all of it, maybe that's the point to give it to another trusted reader and be like, I think maybe something's going wrong. <laughs> but until that has happened, I just don't think, you just can't know. Yeah. Yeah. Kind of following on from that, I mean, one of the things we talk about in our courses is kind of figuring out how to wrangle that negative voice in your head. Yeah. That every time you sit down to write, you know, is immediately on you like, oh, that's a terrible idea. Like you suck. You should yeah. give up now. Tell us about your voice yeah. and what you do to write anyway. Yeah, I mean, it's funny. I feel like I just, it must be an endless process because I feel like I really had quieted my voice and then I wrote stuff that people actually read and then my voice was like, I've been filled with power. You know, I have so many more random mean people on the internet to quote at you during your, you know. Um, and I think, um, but I think that's normal. Like, I, I, I just think, like, when we were talking about drafting before, recognizing, I just think truly recognizing how little value that voice has until the very end. Like, seeing it as not, a, like, because a lot of times, sometimes it's like, yeah, you're just an idiot. But other times it's like, this story would be so much better if you deleted everything you've written and started from scratch. I'm here to help. And like, it's not. It's not here to help. And so I think, yeah, recognizing that, trying to like, I do a lot of tricking myself actually, like mentally where I'm like, no one has to see this story. Or like, this is a draft of a, of the first draft of the story. You it's know a what pre-draft. I mean? Exactly. Like anything that I can do to just sort of trick myself into thinking and I think it's that yeah I think that voice often it's like at least for me it's trying to anticipate what other people might say to you to protect you from it right Mm -hmm. it is trying to help you it's trying to make you know everything that's wrong with your story so that nobody else will say it first Mm -hmm. and I think so telling mine tends to quiet when I don't have to think about who might read it and I could believe that maybe the answer is no one Mm -hmm. and I think about that I do morning pages if you guys do those. Mm-hmm. And like um, I can sometimes start drafting in morning pages because I can't I can't even read my own handwriting. So it's like I'm obviously no one else is gonna read it. Like it's just thinking. Into jumping genres can help. Like I think it helped me. Being like this is a thriller 
And so thrillers do certain things. Like it just circumvented it for a little while. I'm like, this is for fun. This is not the serious thing. I actually take thrillers very seriously. I know they take a lot of work, but if I could trick myself into thinking that I was doing something a little less high stakes, it was easier to move forward. Yeah. Yeah. So basically various different tricks to take the pressure off the outcome. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I think you can't control that part, the outcome. So... And that voice is always there. I mean, every writer I've talked to, ones who won awards, been published many, many times, like every time they sit down to write, the voice is still there. It never goes away. So I think part of kind of what separates writers who, who end up becoming successful and those who don't are that the ones who become successful are able to just keep writing, even though that voice is always there. Yeah, and or learning. I, I feel like mm. I do when I'm writing while it's it's quiet for a little while. Yeah. Like it, it's once you get into it. Yeah, yeah. That it's not that the moments of freedom from it, and that's what I was talking about. I was like, yeah. oh, writing actually felt good for one yeah. goddamn minute. It was because it was finally quiet for a little while. When that happens, and I do think it took a long time, it took me, you know, until I was 30, it's worth it to be in that space. And so, like, it's, it's yeah, it's it's writing through it, but also sort of having faith that at some point it will feel as though, Better. yeah, yeah, and that it will lose its power and, yeah. like, kind of get drained. For me, it's sort of like running. I'm, I really, yeah. I don't love running. And, yeah. and when you first start out, it feels so painful. And the, and the monumental sort right. of hurdle that it feels like you have to you know, the energy you need to summon to actually start right. running. But right. once you get into it, right. then, yeah. you know, then it feels great. Right. Like, why was this so hard? Right. Exactly. Yeah. So, was there a question over there? Yeah, yeah, when you're doing like rewrites and uh-huh. editing and stuff, is there a moment where you think this is kind of done? Because whenever I rewrite, I'm like, this is done. Yeah. Then I go back, I'm like, this is not done. Yeah. I tend to always think my stories are perfect right when I finish my first drafts. And then there's a so sad realization that they're not perfect. I edit because I have to, because you must. And I do the thing, like I said, where I edit as I go. But I I feel like generally, I think people tend to over-edit. I think that there can be a really small, and that's maybe not true when you're first starting out. It's not something necessarily like to tell your students immediately. <laughs> but like if, no, no. once you're at a certain point, there's a small problem. You can pull out that Jenga block and everything can fall down. And so I do think that sometimes the editing voice is dangerous. Like, it's just the same. It's like learning how to get it into its right place. Mm -hmm. Do you know what I mean? Because I think it's true that if you were... And another place where I can get trapped is I can feel like I should write an uncriticizable story. Like, I should write a story that no one should be able to say anything bad about Mm -hmm. in any sentence or in any paragraph or in any, you know, from beginning to end. Mm -hmm. And I don't think that's possible. And I think you can sometimes tell a story where all the life has been drained out of it because someone once said, there are too many, like, this doesn't have, you know, this verb is kind of, you know what I mean? Like, there's always... You, a story is never finished. You just decide it's good enough right now. And I think having the confidence to do that and having readers, I think re- good readers who will tell you the truth, who aren't looking to turn your story into their story, right? Or But who are like, yeah, this works for me. That I feel like now is what my readers do the best for me is they tell me to stop. Do you know what I mean? They're like, actually, I think this is fine. And I'm like, yeah, could I think so too. Because I kept going. I could tear it to pieces. If that answers your question. Any other questions? Yes. Yeah, so my question is kind of the opposite of this yeah, question. Yeah. So <laughs> how do you know that uh, 
I pull plugs on stories all the time. I think actually that's where a lot of my editing happens. It's like I will be writing a story and it kind of dies and I'm like, next. And that's really scary. And like, I don't know that it's good. Like I'm still in that feeling now where like, especially with a novel, I have so many starts. And at some point you have to just keep going, of course. But there are other ways in which I feel like your instincts matter and sometimes stories do die. And I don't believe in like, and you have to do everything you need to keep that from happening. Like I know that if I leave a story for a long time, it will die. If I give a story to people to read before I'm ready, it will die. But once it's dead, like RIP and move on because like you can spend your, like keep bashing against that um, a lot. And I have had the experience where like I thought a story has died and I haven't, and I've left it. And then I've written another story and I realized that I've written the same story. Like, and even I've had drafts when I was putting together the collection, I realized that I had two stories that I both really loved, but they were the same story and one was a draft of the other. Like I had written one, I'd gotten as far as I could, but I hadn't quite finished, like I had, it wasn't quite right. And then I'd written another story that was essentially at its core the same story. And so I had to pick one. And so I think trusting that like, if you're creating and producing a lot, like not getting too invested in one particular item, you know, one particular, that's another outcome shift. Do you know what I mean? Like, I think if it's dead and you're frustrated, put it aside and then you can come back to it if you want. If it feels lively again, if it feels exciting again, if it feels like it promotes your curiosity again, it's still there. But you, the more, if it's making you suffer, it's probably actually, that's probably good information. Um, I used to try a lot as a writer to bully myself through my own suffering. And now I think it's the best key to what is actually going on and what's going on. Yeah, so don't don't be afraid to abandon a story. And as a writer, you're always growing with right, each story exactly. in any case. Right. Nothing you might, is wasted. Exactly. I do, yeah, I really believe that. Yeah. yeah. I've got a quick question about it. I, I, I hear what you're saying. Yeah. But I've like written a novel. And I, I would not, if I throw that away, then I'd just fuck it all, you know? Like just, <laughs> you know what I mean? I'm not going to write another fucking novel. Why not? You know, because it took years. Yes. <laughs> I mean, I like, got it. I get it with a short story, but like. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. I guess you know. I think if you, that's what you feel, that's true. Do you know what I mean? Certainly no one else should be telling you to throw, you know, to fuck off. You are the one who knows when you're like, this is as good as it will be. And I think, I do think there is a level of like, when I wrote that novel and it, it took, yeah, it took years and it, it like to move on from it was hard. And there's probably a version of my life, you know, where, where I was like, this is the one novel that I will write and I will take it down to its foundations and rebuild it again and write it word for word over because this is a novel that means the most to me. And if that was true, but that wasn't quite true. It was like, I wrote a novel. I got, I learned a lot. I loved it with my heart, but I got it as good as I could. And that wasn't quite good enough. And so I had to write another one. And like, I think you are more common maybe. I think that situation, like you hear people, their first novels, like one of my best friends actually just wrote a novel that she'd been working on for 15 years. And so, and that novel is brilliant. And so I can't say that her way is wrong and my way is right. But I do think there's not one right way or one wrong way. Sometimes if you put that novel away and decide you want to write another one, your novel did what it was supposed to do for you. Um, and, you know, only you can decide that, I think. Yeah. Time for one or two more questions. Don't. 
Um, the publishing industry has changed so much in the last years with the modern social media platforms yeah. and the marketing plans and all that. Do you feel pressure from your agent or the publisher to for your next project? And how, how are you dealing with that? I mean, I feel tons of pressure, but I don't actually feel like I am in the weird position where I skipped over a lot of the things that writers have to do when they start out like to maintain a social media presence like and I feel like my story is also people don't tend to take it this way but like no one knows how to run that thing no one knows the best way to be an author on social media no one knows how to make anything go viral I did not make my story go viral that happened to me and so like I can see that that's without like outside of my control and that you could have a story go viral even if like me you had 12 Twitter followers and had tweeted 10 times ever. Do you know what I mean? So I think I would be really skeptical of anyone, especially like the agent you just got, who was like, unless you have 5,000 social media followers, you're never going to be able to like sell your story. Like, no, that's nonsense. But I do think that it's hard. There is an element of self-promotion that I do think is hard for most writers because I think writers aren't naturally like at ease in those spaces and I think probably at some point like I am now having to do other kinds of self-promotion and it makes me uncomfortable you will also if you are lucky enough to like get to that point have to do some awkward Instagram self-promotion and like sharing and sweet and it sucks but I think the truth is all the writers know that it sucks and anyone who's making it look like it doesn't suck is just doing the thing where they're making things look shiny and remembering the essential randomness of it and I think the essential kind of uselessness of it is like a real it will take a lot of the pressure off because you'll recognize you can't control it you know there's a lot of people trying to sell you the story that you can but you can't so that's my from my own experience that's how it seems to me okay maybe to wrap up oh sorry Lawrence juggle the process to decide this is what I'm going to talk about, this is what I'm going to left, leave out and did you ever have a reaction from someone telling you, oh, I recognize myself in what you wrote or I recognize something you came through together in the book. What's, what's the process and have you had any reaction like that? I have actually um, and I think you know yeah, I have. I, I put something in the story that someone recognizes themselves or a, not them, but, you know, like a story that had belonged to them and they were very angry at me and wanted me to take it out. And I said, I will change any details that you think makes it recognizable. I will, you know, adjust it if you have ways, but fundamentally, like, essentially a story that is told, and it wasn't even told to me. It was like it had, you know, had come to me via the grapevine and it ended up in the story and, and the person wanted me to get out. And I was like, I don't, and I saw, I mean, God, it was one of the hardest decisions I was making as the book was going out was whether to do it or not. And, and I decided not to. And I don't know that I made the right choice, but I do think that like ultimately real people, like it's also true that people have seen themselves in my stories and I've been like, that wasn't you at all. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And that even that ownership that that person felt over the piece of thing that belonged to them is only kind of true. Do you know what I mean? It was still something that like, went through my brain and came out covered in my feel as a gross image but like covered in my feelings <laughs> and like I don't feel like I, I kind of I guess I disagree in the end that it was like 
that person had possession over that like one experience that that made its way into my story and I yeah I mean it's hard and I and I think I have feel, felt really lucky and really grateful sorry I know we're like probably at time that most of the people in my life who could recognize themselves in my stories have just sort of agreed that we all pretend it's fiction you know like in the they are all fiction but it's little flickers of things are totally real and like it's kind of them to like be like yeah it's a cool story you know that and I think that's the right relation um of writers to like the people in their if you're going to be a writer you need a little bit of compassion from your friends and family so you want to gather the people around you that hopefully will give you that yeah None of them killed anyone, though. No, and that's the thing. It's like, come on. It could be so much worse. <laughs> to wrap up, I wanted to ask you, so what What are your, well, it doesn't have to be just one, but your best yeah. advice for for beginning writers? Yeah. And it could be from your own experience or, or things, people, advice you received. Yeah. What's been most valuable? I don't know. I mean, I feel wary of advice Mm -hmm. because I feel like I never was able to take advice you know like I was so hungry for advice and I don't know that anything other than time got me where do you know what I mean like and so I feel like I want to tell people especially people who are like in that awful time yeah where like that Ira Glass talks about where you know that you know enough about writing to know that what you're writing sucks like that's (laughs) a terrible place to be in but it's necessary and I just think like um I have been there everyone has been there and like I was so hard on myself like I just I can't believe how mean I was to like nascent Kristen who was just trying to write a story and who didn't know how because she hadn't done it before and how like weirdly sure I was that I should be good at what I was doing instantly and I had like it's just bizarre like why did I think that but I did and I felt shame when I wasn't I'm like I think whatever you can do to just imagine your future self being a little more compassionate to you. Like, cause I only have sympathy for the person. Also for the person who like quit writing for several years. I have sympathy for that person. I was in like a hard place and I got out of it and no amount of shouting at myself to like get back in it and write more would have helped. Mm-hmm. And so I just feel like that is so much rather than telling you what to do differently. I'd be like, you're probably actually doing fine. <laughs> like, and the longer you can keep yourself doing it, the more likely you are to succeed. So whatever you can do to make it easier for on yourself yeah. is the right thing to do. And certainly flagellating yourself yeah, does not never, help. never, never. Do so. not flagellate yourself. Yeah. Okay. Well, thank you so much, Kristen. That was amazing. Oh, thank and, you. Um, All right. Thank you so much. That's it for today. We hope you enjoyed the recording. You can find more information about the Masterclass series and our regular fiction and poetry courses at internationalwriterscollective.com.